Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in this sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. For anybody new to this channel, I want to take a minute to explain what you're seeing here. We actually have two podcasts on this Bear Grease feed, really almost three. We have our documentary-style Bear Grease episodes, like this one. And then every other week, we have what we call the Bear Grease Render which is me and a group of friends discussing and giving behind-the-scenes looks into the making of the Bear Grease documentary-style episodes. So that's what Bear Grease is all about. But every Friday, we also have Brent Reeves' This Country Life podcast, which is pure country gold. It's usually under 30 minutes long and just a lot of fun. So this feed isn't exactly simple, but neither are most worthwhile endeavors. I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Rivers are absolutely so uncertain, and the more you work with them, the more you find out that the the data that we have is great data, but all this data that we take, it's not absolute. It's just snapshots in time. The Mississippi River's stories are big, turbulent, and touch a far-reaching swath of human life. Rivers and men have always been linked. When trying to decide the sequence of telling a story, I'll often imagine I'm telling it to my kids. What individual stories and emphasis would I tell a 10-year-old? And usually that sequence works for the world's brightest minds, like you Bear Grease listeners. So I'm being confronted with where to go with this Mississippi River series. And I know exactly where I'm going. And I would definitely tell my kids about the two Civil War vets who pioneered the doctrine of controlling this great river, Charles Ellett and Andrew Humphreys, and how their obsession and rivalry shaped the way we manage the river, which led to one of the most costly natural disasters in American history. It really changed America. You know what disaster that was? I'd also tell my kids about Mark Twain, America's most celebrated writer who was obsessed with being a riverboat captain on the Mississippi River. 
He bottled American culture in his writing and sent it to the world. And that natural disaster that I was talking about, it was the great Mississippi River flood of 1927. And you better believe that my kids would be on the edge of their seats when I told them about it. And so I'm going to tell you about it too. We're continuing down the river on this third episode of this series. And like William Faulkner, we're in pursuit of understanding the world. I really doubt you're going to want to miss this one. Last three months of 1926, the average reading on every single river gauge was the highest ever known. It didn't take much thinking to figure out that if you got any rain of any significance in 1927, you were going to get a serious flood. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. I know this is hard to understand, but I'll explain. Just listen. That was blues singer Charles Patton singing a song called High Water, which he recorded in 1929. The recording was so rough, you have to feel the energy of what he's singing about. Some say it sounds like the surges of a flood. It's about the flood of 1927. Here are some of the lyrics. Now looking now in Leland, Lord, the river is rising high. Looky here, boys, around Leland, tell me the river is raging high. I'm going over to Greenville, bought the tickets, goodbye. Looky here, the water dug out, lordy, the levee broke, rolled most everywhere. The water at Greenville and Leland, lord, it done rose everywhere. I would go down to Rosedale, but they tell me there's water there. Backwater at Blytheville, backed up all around. Backwater at Blytheville, done struck Joinertown. It was 50 families and children. Tough luck, they can drown. The water was rising up in my friend's door. The water was rising up in my friend's door. The man said his woman folk, Lord, we better go. I want to now read you the words of John Barry, author of Rising Tide. He has something to say about rising water. There is no sight like the rising Mississippi. One cannot look at it without awe or watch it rise and press against the levees without fear. It grows darker, angrier, dirtier. Eddies and whirlpools erupt on its surface. It thickens with trees, rooftops, the occasional body of a mule. 
Its currents roil more, flow swifter, pummel its banks harder. When a section of riverbank caves into the river, acres of land at a time collapse, snapping trees with the great crackling sounds of heavy artillery. On the water, the sound carries for miles. Unlike a human enemy, the river has no weakness, makes no mistakes, is perfect. Unlike a human enemy, it will find and exploit any weakness. To repel it requires an intense, nearly perfect and sustained effort. Major John Lee, in the 1920s, the Army District Engineer in Vicksburg, who would in 1944 make the cover of Time as an important World War II general, observed in physical and mental strain, a prolonged high water fight on threatened levees can only be compared with real war. Rivers are perfect. They are the lawmaker, judge, and jury of their world, superseding any man-concocted laws we could pretend to place on a river. There is no standard to judge a river against. It is neither moral nor amoral, good or bad, friend or foe. It simply exists and dominates. Mankind has always contended with big rivers, and there's a file in every human's brain holding an instinctual awe when you stand on a great river's bank. No data exists on how many of our ancestors died crossing big rivers, but the evolutionary evidence of the trauma of rivers has branded us. There are many biblical references of the spiritual help granted to the righteous when crossing big water. King David's mighty men were commended for bravery for crossing the Jordan River during its flood stage. And the prophet Isaiah declared to those who are redeemed of the Lord that when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. River crossings in the Bible are a test of faith. And if you cross, there is a new life on the other side. In 1528, the first European inland exploration of what is now America happened in Florida and was recorded by a Spaniard named Cabeza de Vaca. In his journal, he recounted a river crossing early in their trip. And he said, quote, that night we came to a river that was very deep and very wide and the current very strong. Since we could not cross over on rafts, we made a canoe for it. We took a day to cross it. One horseman who was called Juan Velasquez, not wanting to wait, entered the river. The current, which was strong, swept him from the horse. He kept hold of the reins, and so he and the horse drowned. The Indians of that lord found the horse. They told us where down the river we would find him, and so they went for him. His death gave us much pain, because until then we had not lost anyone. The horse made dinner for many that night. End of quote. The first recorded European death of what is now America was from a big, wild, rising, dirty brown river. If I was telling this story to my kids, I'd have told them that. We know more about rivers than we ever have, but they're such dynamic systems. Our best science, research, and minds aren't fully able to predict their next move. This is Dr. Biedenharn a research hydraulic engineer with the Corps of Engineers. He probably knows more about rivers than anybody in the country. If I could have had this interview 40 years ago, I'd have had much more definitive answers for you. Yeah, because mm. it was a lot simpler then when I didn't realize how much I didn't know. 
because the older I've gotten and the more I've worked with streams, the more conservative I've gotten and more cautious. Really? Because Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because rivers are absolutely so uncertain. And the more you work with them, the more you find out that the, the data that we have is great data. But that is just one snapshot in time of where the river was on that date in 1915. We surveyed this river one month later. It could be completely different. Hmm. But all this data that we take is absolute. It's not absolute. It's just snapshots in time. I kind of think about it as an inverted pyramid. The Egyptians, you know, and the Mayans knew what they were doing. They started with a really solid base, and then they built their pyramid up. The tip of the pyramid is where we start with very little knowledge, and then we build from there. You know, mm. we get more and more precise. I'm not saying we cannot understand and make predictions and do designs on rivers, but there is always a pretty large level of uncertainty that goes into all our analysis and design that we have to recognize it. I appreciate Dr. Biden Harn's humility. Like I said, he knows more about rivers than anybody, and he's telling us they're unpredictable and hard to control, and that's exactly what we're talking about. The only constant between man and rivers is this uncertainty and the fact that we could be swept away. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode. But not before we do some review from the last two episodes. The Mississippi River starts at Lake Itasca in Minnesota and flows roughly 2,300 miles through the breadbasket of America to the Gulf of Mexico. You need to know this. If we were to count its tributary, the Missouri River, it would be the longest river in the world. There are approximately 2,400 miles of non-dammed, free-flowing river when you combine the Missouri and the Mississippi. If you go up the Mississippi 1,200 miles to its first dam and turn left on the Missouri and go another 1,200 miles to its first dam, that's how you get the 2,400 miles, making this one of the longest free-flowing bodies of water in the world. The Mississippi River drains parts of 31 states, roughly 41% of America, and also two Canadian provinces. Only the Amazon and the Congo rivers have larger drainage basins. It drops to the slope averaging three inches per mile and has an average current speed of nine miles per hour and 18 in a flood. The last 450 miles of the river are below sea level. These stats will never get old to an American and you'll need to memorize them if you plan on being the most interesting person at camp this fall, which I'd expect every Bear Grease listener to be. Conversations can be boring and lack that gritty, greasy gravitas that's bigger than the weather and Ken and Barbie. We're equipping you with the stories. This is how the Mississippi River was tamed. That's what we're talking about, or at least how they tried to tame it. Here is our friend, John Barry. In the 1850s, the U.S. government commissioned two guys to go create a comprehensive report on the Mississippi River, right? which was kind of like a Lewis and Clark expedition of the river. And, and these guys were pretty unique characters. They, they were, but you know, they were rivals. They weren't, Lewis and Clark worked together. These, right. these guys hated each other's guts and they wrote entirely different reports. The first engineering school in the United States was West Point, period. But the superstar of the civilians was a guy named Charles Ellett, 
who actually did go to school in France. And he was, he was a wild man. You know, he built a, a catwalk across Ni- Niagara Falls hmm. and then rode across it in a chariot. That was, <laughs> he was kind of a daredevil. You know, he built one of the first bridges across the Ohio, which incidentally later collapsed. Um, he was killed in, during the Civil War in front of Vicksburg. He was the captain of a naval vessel, a Union naval vessel. Mm. But Ellet had studied the Ohio River, and he was a champion of the civilians. The Congress divided in appropriation uh, because of this rivalry between the Army engineers and the Corps of Engineers and the civilians. And, uh, and this guy named Andrew Atkinson Humphreys was in the Corps. And again, they split the appropriation, and Ellet and Humphreys went off to do their own studies which were, as I said, uh, quite different. Humphreys was also a bit of more than a character. Uh, He loved to fight. In the war, he led a charge in Fredericksburg, one of the bloodiest battles of the war. And he wrote afterwards, when he lost almost 20% of his command in about 30 minutes, that he, quote, I felt like a young girl at her first ball. Mm. He just loved the glory. That's, you know, that's kind of what it, it, it almost feels like these guys had to be that way to tackle what they were trying to tackle. Maybe. I mean, they certainly had to have an ego. Ellett and Humphreys both did their independent studies of the river before the Civil War in the 1850s, following a big flood that wrecked the lower Mississippi. Tackling this river was a grand feat. It was an exploration of science relatively new to mankind. Humphreys and Ellett were both eccentric, brilliant, driven, but egotistical men. Humphreys was a decorated Civil War colonel. He tasted the mud of the river, citing its grittiness and taste in his report, and helped plan the Transcontinental Railroad route. Ellett directly petitioned Abe Lincoln for funding to develop warships for the Union Army for the sole purpose of ramming and sinking Confederate ships. His ships were significant factors in the Union Army's victories on the Mississippi River. These guys were wild. I'm not suggesting that these two were healthy patterns for manhood. I can't say for sure. I really don't know their personal lives. But when I hear about these guys, it hearkens to mind the historically low testosterone levels in modern men. It's a fact that testosterone, the chemical that makes a man a man, has been dropping which some studies show about 1% per year for decades. There are many culprits to this, like obesity, sedentary lifestyles, mock estrogens in plastics, which is so real, but some even believe that it's tight men's underwear. Anyway, testosterone in the rearview mirror now. Remember that Humphreys and Elliot were real ballers. Their stories are interesting because they were confronting the most complex challenges of their time, and the river would end up exposing human nature. This is the theme of rivers. That's what they do. Humphreys did some really rigorous work, made some measurements that stand up today. Ellet was more of a pure genius conceptualizing how to approach the river. He wrote a report uh, which called, for example, for reservoirs to contain you know, hold uh, water back from floods and things like that. There was a theory at the time 
called the levies only policy that you use levies to control floods and only levies because the theory was that the levies by containing the river would force the river to dig out its own channel, essentially dredge its own channel. So it would become deeper and deeper by concentrating the flow. You would concentrate the, the right. you would increase the currents like uh, narrowing uh, the nozzle of a garden hose. Mm-hmm. The water speeds up and it, you point it at mud and it'll cut right through it. So the levees only theory was based on that and that the river, if you narrowed it, it would speed up and, and cut through its soft bottom and pretty soon would be deep enough naturally uh, that it would accommodate a flood. It was a nice theory. <laughs> it was, didn't work. Being a human is a weird condition in which you roll into the earth and a lot of problems have already been solved. At the time, they didn't know how to control the river. And the leading theory was called the levees only policy. Ellett, however, hypothesized that a combination of levees and outlets into reservoirs was a key to controlling the river. But the outlets sounded radical and dangerous and unnecessary to some. Why would you want to let this dragon out of its earthen levee cage? Here's John. Problem was that levees are only in contact with the river for a few weeks a year during a flood. That's, there's not a constant influence. So even though the river probably would deepen itself when the current increased, it wouldn't deepen itself enough to accommodate the enormous increase of water that came in a great flood. Anyway, Ellett and Humphreys agreed that this theory was nonsense and would never work. Levies only. Wouldn't yeah, work. Yeah. yeah. Nonetheless, that became the policy of the Corps of Engineers. Even though there's one thing those two guys agreed upon. It's, you know, truly a strange story. Uh, how a bureaucracy can get something into its head and you can't get it out. It's not just a bureaucracy. People get wrong information in their heads all the time. and Just dig mm-hmm. in. People get wrong information in their heads all the time and just dig in. What? How could this have happened? But Ellett's view of what went on and how to handle the river was, you know, without a doubt in my mind, the best view. Humphrey's study was accurate, but Ellett published much before Humphrey's. And Humphrey's was so competitive and needed glory so much, he called Ellett's study and I mean, there are hundreds, you know, several centuries of engineers studying rivers. He called Ellett's study the worst ever in mm. history <laughs> because Ellett had made certain recommendations. You know, Humphreys wanted his work to be, as he said, the work of my life. You can't have a great work if all you do is confirm someone else's work that came first. Mm. So he ended up recommending against what his own measurements said and what Ellett had said just because he had to be first. Hmm. And he was acclaimed, Humphreys was acclaimed by the scientific community. As I said, Ellett couldn't rebut anything he said because Ellett was dead. Humphreys was a war hero. He was one of the initial founders of the National Academy of Sciences and, you know, honorary member of half a dozen European scientific societies and so forth and so on. 
And after the Civil War, it became head of the Corps of Engineers, so there was nobody to dispute him. And so what's so interesting about that from a human perspective is ego totally dominated this guy's definitely prognosis of of what needed to be done that was going to affect millions and millions of people. And he just needed to have a, a theory that stood out from what his dead competitor said. Right. I mean, does that not happen all across life at all different levels? Unfortunately, yeah. Most of us, if not all of us, like to think that we make judgments rationally. I certainly like to think that. Um, Hopefully, I have enough sense of the absurd and of my own weaknesses that, that I do, but I'm sure I have biases. I know I have biases. You just try to account for them. I mean, when I was a football coach, we used to run... Uh, I guess we call it a 4-4 today, but it was a wide tackle six. (laughs) In that defense, you basically line up two defensive tackles on the guards. So they're outnumbered three to two by the center and two offensive guards. Okay. So you know you're outnumbered, and you know that's a weakness of your defense. And every day in practice, we used to work on that weakness. Everybody we play would try to exploit it. And, you know, some had some success, but I don't know that anybody actually beat us because of that, because we were so aware of that weakness. So, uh, you know, I take the same approach to my biases. I try to be aware of my biases Mm. and adjust for them. Humphreys didn't do that. Mm. (laughs) Humphreys did not do that. Yeah. Uh, And some of the conclusions he reached, for example, Ellett wanted outlets for the Mississippi River uh, when it was near the ocean to let water out during a flood. Uh, Humphreys recommended against that and then became the Corps of Engineers policy to oppose outlets. But some of it made sense on a cost-benefit analysis at the time, but it was, it was really pure ego. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. People at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. To track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. You pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. 
You probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the South. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. We are all aware that other people around us, friends, family members, and even enemies, have blind spots in their life. Am I right or am I right? Spanning from eating too loudly to complete unawareness of how they dominate conversations or blindness of how they treat their spouse. But how much energy do we exert trying to identify the blind spots in our own lives? It's the healthy practice of normal humans across the planet, and the work is never done. It should be on our eternal checklist of things we'll never stop doing. To massively simplify the current strategy of flood control that ended up working, it's a system of levees and outlets. When the water inside the levee gets too high, they open up floodways or outlets that allow massive amounts of water to escape the main channel of the river. These planned floodways are outside the levees and are usually agricultural areas. Ellet, the Union soldier, the one who died in the Civil War at Vicksburg, suggested a system of levees and outlets. I'd now like John Barry to introduce us to a third character of the Mississippi River, a brilliant man born in 1820, the year of Daniel Boone's death, by the name of James Buchanan Eads. James Buchanan Eads is one of the great geniuses in American history. In the 1930s, deans of American colleges of engineering put together a list of the five greatest engineers of all time. And they were talking about people like Leonardo da Vinci and Edison and so forth. And Eads was was on the list. Mm. He was dropped out of school, literally selling apples on the street of St. Louis when he was 11 years old. He arrived in St. Louis and his steamboat sank. He almost drowned to begin with. Mm. But he was an absolute genius. He taught himself calculus. There were a lot of boats and steamboats sinking. He made a fortune when he was a very, very young man, designing ways to salvage the uh, those sunken steamboats, the cargoes in those steamboats. He designed a uh, diving bell, which he couldn't get anybody else to go down in, so he went down himself initially. So he learned what the Mississippi River was like by walking the bottom hmm. and, and feeling 
the softness of it, and you just sink. And it was like you couldn't see anything once you get more than a foot or two below the surface because the sediment load is so dark. But just feeling like a blizzard in front of us. Anyway, uh, after making a fortune building a fleet of salvage vessels, he then built a fleet of ironclads called Turtles that basically conquered the Mississippi River for the Union. They gave Grant his first victories at Forts uh, Henry and Donaldson. He built them in a matter of, about, I think, delivered them in a little over six months from the time that they were, uh, as someone put it, you know, they were standing in the forest until his delivery was a little over six months. And again, you know, Grant used them before the federal government even paid for them. So that was his second great triumph. After the war, St. Louis was losing out in competition to Chicago. St. Louis was by far the biggest city in the Midwest, but Chicago was gaining rapidly because of rail transport. And the problem with St. Louis was the Mississippi River. You can get trains across the Mississippi River except by ferry, which is pretty inefficient. So Yeeds got together uh, a group to build the first bridge across the real Mississippi River. There were bridges way upriver. At the uh, narrower parts of the river. Yeah, both not necessarily narrower, but not you didn't have the force of the water. You had a different kind of bottom, a much more stable bottom and things mm. like that. It was much easier upriver. He decided to make it out of steel. Now, number one, this was going to be the first steel bridge anywhere in the world. Hmm. Number two, it had the longest arches of any bridge in the world. Number three, it was the first bridge Eads had ever designed in his life. <laughs> so he had a consulting engineer who was the chief bridge builder for the Pennsylvania Railroad who said he refused to attach his name to this bridge, which was doomed to fall. So he's responded to the criticism by firing the guy and abolishing the position of consulting engineer. Mm. And he did build his bridge, and it is still standing and still in use. Really? Still standing today? Yes. Built in 1874? Yeah. Uh, and as I say, still in use. What? Where the, is the bridge? St. Louis. They run metro trains over it. Remember all that talk of hubris that it takes to conquer a river? I'd say Eads had a lot of confidence, but he backed it up. Here's how Eads Bridge impacted America in a unique way. Eads essentially forced Carnegie to transform steelmaking into a science. Eads didn't test random plates off a production run. He tested every single plate that mm. went into his bridge. Okay, so the steel was unpredictable and w the quality yes. wasn't consistent. Correct. And so he came in and said, if we're going to build this bridge, it's every piece has got to be exactly integrity. right. And, uh, and Carnegie rebelled but couldn't do anything about it because otherwise they weren't going to, you know, he tried to force them to accept the custom of the trade. But instead, Eads, in a way, transformed American steelmaking. Hmm. Uh, by requiring the precision that uh, he insisted upon. And that's why the bridge is still standing. At, hmm. at the time, more than 20% of all the bridges made in the United States would fall down. You know, I guess in some ways you could look at it and say that the the bigness of the river and the, the formidable obstacle that it was 
caused people to rise to a new challenge. I mean, even saying that Eads, this guy that had to build this bridge, yeah. changed the steel industry. And maybe if we didn't have a Mississippi River, we'd still have crummy steel. <laughs> well, by you know? now, it'd probably be okay. But uh... <laughs> Carnegie wanted Eads to just accept the custom of the trade, which was a crummy, inconsistent steel strength. And we all know why he didn't want to raise the industry standard. It was that moolah, the dough, that ching. I don't know the full situation, so it's not entirely fair for me to cast this kind of judgment on Carnegie, but this kind of stuff makes me angry and makes me wonder where in today's corporate world is greed, money-stifling advancement. No doubt, it's everywhere. Capitalism, with all its glory and benefits which we all love, has placed the highest priority of our society on the acquisition of wealth and making money, this is a double-edged sword that our society is and will be paying for in the future. But in defense of Carnegie, don't hate the player, hate the game. And you can't say you hate corporate America if you drive a fancy vehicle and have an iPhone and buy big box store-bought meat. Our society, including Clay Newcomb, is a circus of contradictions. But I stand by the idea that the mighty Mississippi what the Choctaw called the river beyond any age, spurred America to greatness, or at least greatness as far as empires gauge it. All right, brothers and sisters, there was another man who was on the river during the same time period as Humphreys, Ellet, and Eads. He was not an engineer, but he was studying the river. It was a young man in his 20s named Samuel Clemens. He was obsessed with the Mississippi River, and between 1857 and 1859, he spent two years as a cub pilot in training to be a full-fledged riverboat pilot. He'd later go by the name of Mark Twain, which is a riverboat term used to describe 12 feet of water, or two Twain fathoms. His time on the river exposed him to so many different types of people, it helped him become one of America's top, if not the top, writer. People on the river were talkers. It was almost like an exhibition of being human in the microcosm of a small ship. In 1883, later in Twain's life, he would write a book called Life on the Mississippi. It's considered by many to be the greatest prose in American literature. In the book, he idolized river pilots. He said, All pilots are tireless talkers when gathered together, and as they talk only about the river, they are always understood and always interesting. Your true pilot cares nothing about anything on earth but the river, and his pride in his occupation surpasses the pride of kings. I like that. He went on to describe the absolute power of the Mississippi River pilots in contrast to other perceived earthly power. Good writing is good thinking, and it makes us see something from a totally different angle. I think you'll understand why he's considered the greatest when you listen to the clarity of his writing. Here's Mark Twain on pilots. If I have seemed to love my subject, it is no surprising thing, for I have loved the profession far better than any I have followed since, and I took measureless pride in it. The reason is plain. A pilot in those days was the only unfettered and entirely independent human being that lived in the earth. Kings are but the hampered servants of parliament and the people. Parliament sit in chains forged by their constituency. The editor of a newspaper cannot be independent, but must work with one hand tied behind him by the party and patrons. 
and be content to utter only half or two-thirds of his mind. No clergyman is a free man and may speak the whole truth regardless of his parish's opinions. Writers of all kinds are manacled servants of the public. We write frankly and fearlessly, but then we modify before we print. In truth, every man and woman and child has a master in worries and frets and servitude. But in the day I write of, the Mississippi pilot had none. The moment that boat was underway in the river, she was under the sole and unquestioned control of the pilot. He could do with her exactly as he pleased, run her when and whither he chose, and tie her up on the bank whenever his judgment said that that course was best. His movements were entirely free. He consulted no one. He received commands from nobody. He promptly resisted even the merest suggestions. Indeed, the law of the United States forbade him to listen to commands or suggestions rightly considering that the pilot necessarily knew better how to handle the boat than anybody could tell him. So here was the novelty of a king without a keeper, an absolute monarch who was absolute in sober truth and not by a fiction of words. The absolute authority of a river pilot is a novel idea. Though certainly romanticized by Twain, it's hard not to see his point. Perhaps the most intriguing section of his book is him describing the incredible navigation skills that a Mississippi pilot had to have. Wrecks weren't just common, they were the norm. There are stretches of the river where he said shipwrecks averaged one per mile. I think hearing Twain's voice about the river is important to understanding America. At the time, his writing would have been top-level entertainment for Americans. It would be more influential than the trendy Hollywood movie today. Books and reading were everything. Radio didn't even exist until the 1900s. Here's Mark Twain's pilot describing to him how to navigate a river in the dark. You see, this has got to be learned. There isn't any getting around it. A clear starlit night throws such heavy shadows that if you don't know the shape of the shore perfectly, you would claw away from every bunch of timber because you would take the black shadow of it for a solid cape. And you see, you would be getting scared to death every 15 minutes by the watch. You would be 50 yards from the shore all the time when you ought to be within 50 feet of it. You can't see a snag in one of those shadows, but you know exactly where it is, and the shape of the river tells you when you're coming to it. Then there's your pitch dark night. The river is a very different shape on a pitch dark night from what it is on the starlit night. All the shores seem to be straight lines then, and mighty dim ones too, and you'd run them for straight lines, only you know better. You boldly drive your boat into what seems to be a solid straight wall, and that wall falls back and makes way for you. And then there's your gray mist. You take a night when there's one of those grisly, drizzly gray mist, and there isn't any particular shape to a shore. A gray mist would tangle the head of the oldest man that ever lived. Well, then there's different kinds of moonlight that change the shape of the river in different ways, you see. Twain interrupts his pilot. Oh, don't say any more, please. I've got to learn the shape of the river according to all these 500,000 different ways. If I tried to carry all that cargo in my head, it would make me stoop shoulder. My spirits were down in the mud again. Two things seemed pretty apparent to me. One was that in order to be a pilot, a man has got to learn more than any one man ought to be allowed to know. The other was that he must learn it all over again in a different way every 24 hours. This river pilot dissected the different categories of night, clear starlit nights, pitch dark nights, and a night with a gray mist. 
I like the hyper-specific competence in this master's ability to parse out difference in what appears to be a monolithic thing like the dark. Twain was enamored with the pilot's skill set. He said, I think a pilot's memory is about the most wonderful thing in the world. To know the Old and New Testaments by heart and to be able to recite them ghibli forward and back or begin at random anywhere in the book and recite both ways and never trip or make a mistake is no extravagant mass of knowledge and no marvelous faculty compared to a pilot's massed knowledge of the Mississippi and his marvelous faculty in the handling of it. I make this comparison deliberately, and I believe I am not expanding the truth when I do. Many will think the figure too strong, but pilots will not. End of quote. Here's Twain on reading water, and again, I think it's important that we hear old Twain's voice. The Face of the Water in Time became a wonderful book, a book that was a dead language to the uneducated passenger, but which told its mind to me without reserve, delivering its most cherished secrets as if it uttered them with a voice. And it was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. Throughout the long 1,200 miles, there was never a page that was void of interest. Never one that you could leave unread without loss. Never one you could want to skip, thinking you could find higher enjoyment in some other thing. There was never so wonderful a book written by man. Never one whose interest was so absorbing, so unflagging, so sparklingly renewed with every reprusal. The passenger who could not read it was charmed with a peculiar sort of faint dimple on its surface, on the rare occasions when he did not overlook it altogether. But to the pilot, it was an italicized passage. Indeed, it was more than that. It was a legend of the largest capitals, with a string of shouting exclamation points at the end of it, for it meant that a wreck or a rock was buried there that could tear the life out of the strongest vessel that ever floated. It is the faintest and simplest expression the water ever makes, and the most hideous to a pilot's eye. In truth, the passenger who could not read this book saw nothing but all manner of pretty pictures in it, painted by the sun and shaded by the clouds, whereas the trained eye They were not pictures at all, but the grimmest and most dead earnest of reading material. When I had mastered the language of this water and had come to know every trifling feature that bordered the great river as familiar as I knew the letters of the alphabet, I had made a valuable acquisition, but I had lost something too. I had lost something which could never be restored to me while I lived. All the grace, the beauty, the poetry had gone out of the majestic river. I still kept in mind a certain wonderful sunset which I witnessed when steamboating was new to me. A broad expanse of river was turned to blood. In the middle distance, the red hue brightened into gold, through which a solitary log came floating, black and conspicuous. I stood like one bewitched. I drank it in in a speechless rapture. The world was new to me, and I'd never seen anything like this at home. But as I have said, a day came when I began to cease from noting the glories and the charms which the moon and the sun and the twilight wrought upon the river's face. Another day came and I ceased altogether to note them. Then, if that sunset scene had been repeated, I should have looked upon it without rapture and should have commented on it inwardly after this fashion. The sun means that we're going to have wind tomorrow. That floating log means the river is rising. Small thanks to that. That slant mark on the water refers to a bluff reef which is going to kill somebody's steamboat one of these nights. No, the romance and beauty of it were all gone from the river. 
All the value of any feature of it had for me now was to amount of its usefulness it could furnish towards compassing the safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days, I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that ripples above some deadly disease? Are not all her visible charms sown thick with what are to him signs and symbols of hidden decay? Does he ever see her beauty at all? Or doesn't he simply view her professionally and comment upon her unwholesome condition? And doesn't he sometimes wonder whether he has gained most or lost most by learning his trade? What an incredible question. Did he lose or gain something by learning this trade of being a Mississippi River pilot? Naivety can carry an empty, fleeting bliss. But the naive don't change the world with their literature or tame giant, ancient, raging rivers. Twain went through his training to become a pilot, but the Civil War ended his career and ultimately ended a 60-year steamboat era. He said that Mississippi steamboating was born about 1812, and at the end of 30 years it had grown into mighty proportions, and in less than 30 years more, it was dead. So from 1812 to 1860 was the Mississippi River steamboating era. You know, whenever I look at pictures of my kids from the past year or even just a few months ago, I'm so amazed at how fast they're growing up, and then it hits me hard. I'm getting older, too. That's why planning for my family's financial security has become a top priority. Making sure we're prepared and having enough life insurance in case something unexpected happens and I'm out of the picture is crucial. And Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to get the protection that's right for your family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents and for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's M-E-E-T fabric.com slash bear meetfabric.com slash bear policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions sport dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry born in 2003 in knoxville tennessee sport dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. People at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog where innovation meets passion to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me to track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. 
We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. After Humphreys, Ellett, and Ede studies, by the 1870s, government levees were changing the river, making it safer and partly taming it. Twain would lament the passing of the Wild River. It's really interesting because you'd think in the late 1800s that the Mississippi River was wild, but Twain thought it was tame. And our boy Twain actually addressed Eads in his book. Here's Twain. The military engineers of the commission had taken upon their shoulders the job of making the Mississippi over again, a job transcended in size by only the original job of creating it. They're building wing dams here and there to direct the current and dikes to confine it into narrower bounds. One who knows the Mississippi will promptly say, not aloud, but to himself, that 10,000 river commissions with the minds of the world at their back cannot tame that lawless stream, cannot curb it or confine it, cannot say to it, go here or go there and make it obey, cannot save a shore which has been sentenced, cannot bar its path with an obstruction that it will not tear down, dance over, and laugh at. But a discreet man will not put these things into spoken words. But the West Point engineers have not their superiors anywhere. They know all that can be known of their obtruse science, and so... Since they conceive that they can fetter and handcuff that river and boss him, it is but wisdom for the unscientific man to keep still, lie low, and wait till they do it. Captain Eads, there's our boy Eads, with his jetties has done a work at the mouth of the Mississippi which seemed clearly impossible, so we do not feel full confidence now to prophesy against the like impossibilities. Otherwise, one might pipe out and say the commission might as well bully the comets in their courses and undertake to make them behave as to try to bully the Mississippi into right and reasonable conduct. Twain expressed his lack of confidence in science and man's bullying in 1883, which would have been the start of man's biggest push to manipulate the river. It's really interesting because he would be right in that lack of confidence, at least at first. Mark Twain would die in 1910, 17 years before his words would prove true in the flood of 1927. We're going to read one more section of Twain, and I think it shows his sarcasm, humor, and his thoughts on the science of the time. From where we're going to start this passage, in the previous paragraph, he'd cited all the man-made cutoffs that had shortened the river by 242 miles. Here's Twain. This is the last one. Now, if you want to be one of those ponderous scientific people and let on to prove what had occurred in the remote past 
by what had occurred in a given time in the recent past or what will occur in the far future by what has occurred in the late years, what an opportunity is here. Geology never had such a chance nor such exact data to argue from, nor development of species either. That's a jab at Darwin. Glacial epics are great things, but they are vague, vague. Please observe. In the space of 176 years, the lower Mississippi has shortened itself 242 miles. That is an average of a trifle over one mile and a third per year. Therefore, any calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old Silurian period, just a million years ago, next November, the lower Mississippi River was upward of 1,300,000 miles long and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing rod. And by the same token, any person can see that 742 years from now, the lower Mississippi will only be a mile and three quarters long. And Cairo and New Orleans will have joined their streets together and be plodding comfortably along under a single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. There is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesome returns of conjecture out of such trifling investment of fact. That was good and sarcastic, Mr. Mark Twain. You know, if you understand the math there, you see what he's doing. He's making fun of it. And that's wild that he was doing that in the 1880s. And he was even poking fun at Darwin and the idea of speciation. Did you hear that? I'm fascinated by science and believe in the endeavor wholeheartedly. But it's not much different than the way I'm fascinated and have pledged my allegiance to riding sure-footed mules in the backwoods. I'm conflicted. Mules and science have a lot in common, you see. They're both incredible functional beasts that will kill you if mishandled. And their purpose is easily misunderstood, too. Joyride your kids on a dead broke horse, not on a vinegar-spitting flashy mule. Likewise, don't send science to do the work of a spiritual philosopher. That's like asking a pinball machine to make bread. And if your rational Western mind tells you that science outranks and supersedes a man's verified, bona fide spiritual belief, backed with real life and real faith, I will submit that you have taken the bait, and the hook will shortly enter your upper lip, leading you to a stringer of human existence that is very new to the planet, only taking into consideration the natural without the spiritual is very new to mankind. I'm done. I'm now stepping off this box of Irish Spring. Let's talk about the Great Flood of 1927. When it rained five days and the skies turned dark as night When it rained five days in the skies turned dark as night. In March of 1927, just a month before the start of the Great Flood, Bessie Smith recorded the song Backwater Blues about the floods of 1926. When it rains five or six days and the skies are dark as night, then trouble taking place in the lowlands at night, she said. She was known as the Empress of the Blues and will become the most famous female blues singer of the 1930s. Little did she know what was coming. Last three months, 
1926. The average reading on every single river gauge, not only on the Mississippi itself, but on the Ohio, on the Missouri, on every other tributary, was the highest ever known. Only six times in history at Vicksburg had the uh, gauge ever broken 30 feet in, in October, and it had never broken 31 feet. In October 1926, it broke 40 feet. Hmm. So the whole drainage basin was saturated, and uh, it didn't take much thinking to figure out that if you got any rain of any significance in 1927, you were going to get a serious flood. And in fact, you just got more rain. You had five storms in the spring of 1927, each of which was greater than any single storm in the preceding 10 years. This is on top of a river basin that's already filled with water. So uh, beginning on New Year's Day, you you had floods in uh, Pittsburgh and you know, proceeding downriver Louisville, you had, you know, floods on basically every tributary system in the entire river. So the net result was, you, I mean, you knew this, this was going to be a bad year. The book actually opens with a scene on what turned out to be the biggest storm of the year. And, and that one, the, the scenes in Greenville, Mississippi, but on that day in New Orleans, they got 14.96 inches of rain in 24 hours. Wow. You were going to have a problem. And indeed. And, and, and at that time, there were government-built levees, a thousand miles of government-built levees up the river. Right. Basically, the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Illinois. Correct. And, and these these levees were touted to the people of the river basin as un, unbeatable. Right. It was like the Titanic. Right. It was like uh, these. Cla- yeah. In 1926, in the official report of the Corps of Engineers, it said, I think for the first time, it said, you know, we're now in a position to protect the territory from overflow. Classic hubris. Yeah. (laughs) Classic. Yeah, yeah. And then the big break was in Mounds, Mississippi. The single biggest break. There were plenty of big breaks. Right. That that was kind of the one that, like, when it happened, we... That people knew we're in big trouble. Well, they already knew they were in big trouble. Uh, That particular break, there had already been flooding. As I said, you know, people died in in Virginia. They died in Oklahoma. That one break was probably the biggest single break, not only in that flood, but maybe in any flood that we know of. Because, you know, close to 450,000 cubic feet a second was coming out of the river. That's an enormous... Through, through the levee. Yeah. Well, the levee, of course, had breached. There yeah. wasn't any levee. Yeah. Uh, but that single levee break flooded a land 70 miles to the uh, east to the hills of Mississippi. Mm. And, uh, and for probably about 80 miles, I guess it is, from there until Vicksburg, where there were... So it filled the, uh, the delta. It flooded about 27,000 square miles on the lower Mississippi. That's not counting, uh, you know, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Nashville, Knoxville, Oklahoma City. Uh, it's not counting that land. On about 27,000 mile, square miles on of the lower Mississippi and, you know, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, so forth. 
Here's an excerpt from John Barry's Rising Tide. There the river had lingered for months, not leaving all the land until September. Then it finally fell back within its banks, languid once again like a snake that had swallowed its prey and lay now digesting it. It left behind ruin and rot. At the sight of each crevasse, it had dug out blue holes, pockets of deep water lakes where fishing was often best and that exists still, and deposited mountains of sand over thousands of acres. In the entire flooded region, 50% of all animals, half of all the mules, horses, cattle, hogs, and chickens had drowned. Thousands of tenant farmers' shacks had simply disappeared. Hundreds of sturdy barns, cotton gins, warehouses, farmhouses had been swept away. Buildings by the tens of thousands had been damaged, and in towns, whole blocks had become heaps of splintered lumber, like the leavings of a tornado. In some places, great mounds of sand covered fields and streets. On the fields, in the forests, in the streets and yards and homes and businesses and barns, the water left a reeking muck. It filled the air with stench. And in the sun, it lay baking and cracking like broken pottery, dung-colored and unvarying to the horizon. The Mississippi River flood of 1927 caused the Ohio to flow backwards, covered some delta towns with over 30 feet of water, and caused more economic damage than Hurricane Katrina. The flood displaced over 700,000 people, but disproportionately affected over 500,000 black Americans, which comprised 75% of the population of the Delta. Official reports showed 250 deaths from the flood, but deaths resulting from the impacts of the flood, not just drowning in the initial water rise, were likely in the thousands. The flood highlighted the discrepancy of treatment between blacks and whites. Much of John Barry's book is about the refugee camps and the thousands of men working 24 hours a day repairing levees during the flood. I want to read an excerpt from Rising Tide. And it's an important thing to realize that the 42-year-old William Alexander Percy, who was Leroy Percy's son, we talked about him extensively on episode two, was appointed by Herbert Hoover to oversee the Red Cross operations in the refugee camps on the levees. So the young Percy was in charge of the levee camps. They were camping on the levees because it was the only land that wasn't underwater. The short version of that story is that the blacks were forced by the National Guard to stay in refugee camps on the levees while most whites were allowed to leave on boats. If you remember... A lot of the issues of the South came from their desperate need for labor in agriculture. Here's John Barry. In the first hours of the flood, black and white had risked their lives to save each other. There had been a feeling of humanity, not race. Now the disparity between life for black and white seemed greater than in normal life. Blacks who had believed Greenville to be a special place felt betrayed. Petty insults stirred more resentment. Whenever the steamer Capital pulled away from the dock, its calliope routinely played bye-bye Blackbird. It was like a slap in the face of the blacks. Even many whites were bothered. The blacks also resented Will's orders, which were printed every day on the newspaper's front page. First, he required, quote, groups of Negroes outside of Greenville to get to the levee and be rationed there. Leaders of the black community complained. So did the whites. But the most serious grievance penetrated the soul. The blacks were no longer free. 
The National Guard patrolled the perimeter of the levee camp with rifles and fixed bayonets. To enter or leave, one needed to pass. They were imprisoned. This was true in every camp in the state. Mississippi was determined to keep its workers, even if it required force to do so. I told you the name of Will Percy would come up later. He was the one that made the decision, with the influence of his father, Leroy, to not evacuate the blacks out of the camps, but rather make them stay. They were afraid they'd leave and never come back, which is exactly what would happen to many. That's wild stuff. Here's John Barry with how the flood of 1927 impacted America. If, if you were just describing in a, in, a, in a short version, which obviously this is what your whole book is about, is how this flood changed America. What's, what's a version that we can understand of how this flood changed America? Well, there, you know, number one, it elected Herbert Hoover president. You know, you can demonstrate that almost with mathematical certainty. Uh, Hoover was put in charge of the rescue and rehabilitation of close to not a million people. And he actually did a great job. It created he national fame from yeah, that. He, he was already had, you know, was extremely well known from his activities in World War One. He was already had a. He was referred to as a great humanitarian. He was a logistics genius in just getting. Food. There were there were seven hundred thousand people being fed by the Red Cross, and just handling the logistics of getting that done. He's in charge of that, and he did a terrific job. So that's number one. Number two, it changed the policy of the Corps of Engineers and pretty much every engineer anywhere in the world uh, in terms of how you deal with rivers. Uh, you recognize that you can't simply contain them within levees. You have to give them room to spread out. The end result was, you know, there's an outlet to the ocean just, well, to the Lake Pontchartrain and through Lake Pontchartrain to the Gulf of Mexico, just above New Orleans, about 15 miles above New Orleans. You know, there are other spillways, if necessary, that start above Baton Rouge. It also will lead to the ocean. Uh, there are reservoirs, you know, throughout the Mississippi River Basin on both sides of the river to keep water out of the river. And, uh, of course, they increase the levees as well. People don't realize it, but in 2011 which is probably the second biggest flood ever. Uh, hmm. There were close to 10,000 square miles of land flooded by design. This was land that was essentially set aside to allow the river room to expand. Hmm. That's number two. Number three, it was an enormous spur to African-American migration out of the Mississippi Delta and, and not just Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana as well, to, you know, Chicago, to Detroit, to Los Angeles. You know, there was upwards of 800,000 people who left that region uh, because of the flood. Uh, and that, it didn't start the Great Migration, but it was a huge spur to it. It also began the shift of African-American voters from the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, to the Democratic Party. That was because of some deals that Hoover cut to get the nomination. You know, in those days, every African-American who voted basically voted Republican. And they didn't control any state parties except in the South, because in those days, the Democratic Party controlled pretty much every Southern state. 
and they were all white. They didn't allow any black participation. So if you're African-American, even though you couldn't vote in a state election in Alabama, you could be active in the Republican Party in the state of Alabama. And that was worth something because if you had a Republican mm. president, you had a say in who got to be the post, you know, run a post office in your town or, or who got nominated to a court. You, even though you couldn't vote, you, the Republican White House might listen to you. Hoover had cut a deal to get the nomination with uh, African-American leaders, and he later betrayed them. The most important change is probably the most subtle and the hardest to prove, but it shifted the way people thought about the responsibility of the federal government to help people in a disaster. I want to close with the reading of the last page of Rising Tide. The first sentence of Will Percy's autobiography, Lanterns on the Levee, reads, My country is the Mississippi Delta, the river country. The river had created the Delta and the white man, the Percys and men like them, had brought blacks to the Delta to clear it and to tame it and to transform it into an empire. Together they had done that. They had built that empire. Will believed that he was watching that empire disintegrate. Near the end of his autobiography, completed only months before his death in 1941, he wrote, The old southern way of life in which I had been reared existed no more, and its values were ignored or derided. A tarnish has fallen over the bright world. Dishonor and corruption triumph. My own strong people have become lotus eaters. The feat is here again, the last, the most abhorrent. He seemed to accept that defeat. If only he accepted the absurd and finally himself. A society does not change in sudden jumps. Rather, it moves in multiple small steps along a broad front. Most of these steps are parallel, if not quite simultaneous. Some advance further than others and some even more in an opposite direction. The movement rather resembles that of an amoeba with one part of the body extending itself outward than another even while the main body stays back until enough of the mass has shifted to move the entire body. The great Mississippi River flood of 1927 forced many small steps. Those are the words of John Barry. I can't thank you enough for listening to Bear Grease. On the next episode, we're going to get back into the science of the river and even its danger. We're going to talk about its fish and turtles and all that cool stuff. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. I can't wait to talk with all the folks on the Bear Grease Render next week. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. 
it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to Land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.